If you're joining us today for the first time, you are joining us um, in kind of as we are in the middle of a sermon series going straight through the book of Acts. And so Acts, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, is the fifth book of the New Testament in your Bible. It's called the book of Acts because it communicates to us the actions of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles in the early church. And we've been working our way through this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and today we're going to pick up in chapter six. Um, But before we get into chapter six, it's always important for us to just kind of have a quick recap of what led us up to this point in chapter six. And so Let me just give you the quick recap. In Acts chapter 1, we see the resurrected Christ um, ascending to heaven. But before he ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples to go wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come on them. And he says, when the Holy Spirit does come, then they will be his witnesses in power. Taking his message uh, to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit does indeed come upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. They begin to minister uh, to the community in great power, many people believing and being converted. Chapter three, we see the apostles' ministry kind of in and around the temple area, healing people. The crowds are amazed. The buzz starts to spread uh, about the apostles. And in chapter four, we get to the point where the religious uh, leaders come to the apostles and they arrest the apostles for preaching Christ and stirring up the crowds. And uh, the, the religious leaders threaten and warn these apostles to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. The church prays over the apostles. They come together in unity. They come together in generosity. In chapter five, the apostles keep preaching. They keep proclaiming Christ. They do so with signs and wonders. They get arrested again. This time, more severe consequences. They get put in prison, but the Lord actually miraculously works to release them from prison. And then as uh, they continue to preach, as we saw last week at the end of chapter five, the apostles were again arrested for preaching Christ. This time they were beaten uh, and warned to stop, yet they continued serving the Lord. And it says in chapter five um, that they counted it a privilege to suffer for his name. All of that leads up to where we are now in Acts chapter six. And so we get into chapter six. Here's how I want us to work through this message today. We're going to work our way through verses 1 through 7. I just want to make some teaching points along the way. And as is kind of the norm for us in this series, we'll bring it all to a conclusion with some personal um, application and some takeaways for us at the end. And really what I hope that you, I hope you catch the big idea from this message today is that this, I hope that we desire to be a church where we organize ourselves and function in such a way that nothing hinders the preaching of God's word uh, and the care for God's people. Okay, that's what we want to see uh, through the, the main point of this text today. So let's look at Acts chapter one or Acts chapter six, verse one. The scripture says, now in these days, right, the days that I had just described to you, all leading up to where the disciples were being beaten for proclaiming the name of Christ. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what I want you to understand right away is that we're in a season, despite all the hardships that had come upon the church, we're in a season where the church is growing. More and more disciples were being made. 
And so you have to remember, um, at uh, the, you know, kind of in the Gospels, it started with 12 uh, disciples. The numbers kept growing. By the time we get to Acts chapter 1, there's about 120 disciples. After Acts chapter 2, um, there were thousands more added to the church. And then you get to Acts chapter 3 and 4, and even thousands more were added on top. So the church is growing. Disciples are being made and multiplied. And here's the thing. When you get more people, you have more what? Problems. More people, more problems, right? Nothing, you know, we know nothing about that at UBC, right? I mean, nothing, right? Um, the truth is that a church with more people will have more problems because a church with more sinners is going to have more sin. You with me on that? Right? It's just the nature of the beast. You and I, we contribute to the sin problem and therefore the challenges in a growing church. And so here we have the early church booming, growing. At the same time, um, that growth came with, with challenges and we see that the complaints start to come in and I can just imagine it as a pastor. You know, I can just imagine the early church. You know, some people see the growth and what are they like? Well, I remember the good old days when we were only 120. We could all fit into one upper room, you know? There used to be, there used to, we used to have room in the service for the Holy Spirit to move. Remember when the room was shaken because we just prayed all day, right? Like you can just, look at, look at Peter. Peter's getting too big for his britches. He's becoming a celebrity. People want to walk in his shadow. They think they're going to be healed by a shadow. And I can just hear some of the complaints that start to arise. The church was growing. There were problems. And one of the problems was that the people, some people were being overlooked during something called the daily distribution. The daily distribution was likely some sort of a system that had been put in place where um, the, the resources and the goods that the church was contributing to the needs of the community, um, that they were being distributed day by day. If you remember, like in Acts chapter four, we read and we said that people were just giving generously of what they had. And the scripture says there were no needy among the people of God. So those goods were being and resources were being distributed. Well, there's some growing tension between two groups that we just read about, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Hellenists, if you're not familiar with who they are, they were Greek Jews who read the Septuagint, which is the... Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek, and um, the Hebrews, um, the Hellenists also spoke Greek. And so that's one group. The, the Hebrews were Hebraic Jews. They read the Hebrew scriptures. They spoke either Hebrew or Aramaic. And in years past, what, what you had had is that the Hellenists kind of had their own worship system, place to meet, and the Hebrew, Hebraic Jews had their own. And now in the first century church, they're all starting to come together and they're starting to join. And you can see that people with different languages, different traditions, different backgrounds, they're starting to come together. And so you can anticipate that there might be some problems. One of the problems is that the Hebraic Jews had constantly kind of thought about themselves as being the upper echelon people of God and that everybody else was maybe a little bit junior varsity or whatever. And here what we have is that the, uh, the problem is that the Hebrew widows were being taken care of in the daily distribution, but the Hellenistic ones were being overlooked. And so we have a, 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 the real need. The problem is that some widows were, were not being cared for the way they should, which by the way, the scripture calls the church um, and gives us the wonderful privilege and serious responsibility of caring for widows. Um, 
James chapter 1 verse 27 says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that verse deserves its own sermon, uh, but one of the things that we can say is that the care for widows, being present with widows is near to the heart of God. It's, it's called pure religion, undefiled religion. And so the Apostle Paul, if you want to just study this on your own, um, as time went by, the, the, um, the care for widows became a very active and practical thing in the early church. And there were challenges that came along with that. And if you want to read more about this, you can read 1 Timothy chapter 5, which the Apostle Paul gives more instruction about how the church should indeed care for widows that are in the church. That's a different sermon for a different day, but it's something you might want to study on your own. But the care for widows is a wonderful privilege and a serious responsibility of the church. But the complaint about some widows being overlooked is the one that's brought before the apostles. So as we get into verse 2, we'll see that the apostles decide, you know, we're going to address this problem. We're going to solve this issue because problems don't solve themselves. They must be addressed. Ignoring it doesn't work. Hoping that they just go away and burying your head in the sand, you know, it does, doesn't work. So the apostles want to address the issue. And so here's what they do. Verse 2. Verse two says, and the 12, talking about the apostles, they summoned the full number of disciples and they said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God in order to serve tables. So serving tables, meaning managing the, the food distribution to the widows or whoever else may have been involved in that. So you got to notice that the 12 apostles, they gathered all the church together right? They, they, again, they're not sweeping this issue under the rug. They're not ignoring it. They're saying, okay, we're going to go hit this head on. We're going to deal with it. Let's get the church together and figure it out. And verse two says that the solution that the apostles came up with is that they're saying like, at least part of the, the issue is like, it's not going to be right if we give up the ministry of the word, right? So they didn't want to do that because let's be honest, it, a church, a church cannot afford to neglect the ministry of the word. Um, if the ministry of the word ceases in the church, you basically cease to have a faithful church. You guys with me on this? If, uh, at least, you know, you, you're going to end up having over time a very unhealthy church. So if a church gets to the point where all of its leaders, pastors, elders get caught up in activities that as good as they may be, take them away from the ministry of the word, you know, theological issues, spiritual needs are going to end up going unaddressed amongst the people and the church is going to be going the wrong direction. So the church cannot neglect the ministry of the word. At the same time, churches also need to figure out ways to have the needs, the real needs of their people met. As we stated before, it is a privilege and a great, great responsibility of the church to care for widows. So we don't just ignore that. We don't just set it aside. Um, you know, it, uh, it, we would be missing an opportunity to participate in pure and undefiled religion if we just said, oh, we're going to neglect the care of widows. So here we start to see the need for two types of ministry, Right? We see the need for two types of ministry, teaching ministry and service ministry, teaching ministry and service ministry. What I want you to see is that these two things don't need to conflict with each other. 
They're like peanut butter and jelly, man. They just go together well. This is the way it's made to work. It's not like the teaching ministry uh, is important and the widow care isn't. It's not like the widow care ministry is important and the ministry of the word isn't. Instead, we need to value them both and figure out a way to get both done. You guys tracking with that? We figure that out. We figure it out. So the apostles say, what do they say? It's not right that we, the apostles, should give up the preaching of the word in order to serve tables. So what did the apostles know? They knew that their role, their giftedness, the assignment that God had given them was to preach and that someone else's role and giftedness and assignment was going to ensure that widows and others who needed food had food. So this text is showing us that the teaching ministries must be done by some people, the serving ministries must be done by other people, both can be done, they go hand in hand and neither needs to be neglected. Therefore, The apostles decide to work with the church to make a solution to meet those needs and they get the body involved, a large group of people involved. Look at verse three. Here's what the apostles tell the church. They say, therefore, brothers, all right, imagine this message going out to all the believing community in Jerusalem. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Again, what was the duty, guys? The duty was to ensure that food was distributed properly and widows weren't being overlooked, right? So they said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna go through a process and we're gonna appoint guys to be food managers. And don't tell me that's not hard because I worked at Cracker Barrel <laughs> on Sundays when all the Christians who just got out of church came in and when we ran out of biscuits, you would have thought it was full of people who needed Jesus. So here we go. It's, here's what I want you to see in our text, okay? The, I want you to see that there's a high bar of criteria that's set for someone to serve as a table waiter in the early church. What is the first criteria? The first criteria is that they are to be of good repute. They need to have a good reputation. And here's why, think about this. It's very likely that the seven men who are put in responsibility here, in charge over this ministry, it's likely that they weren't just handling food, but that they were handling money and resources and intake and output and inventory and various things. And the last thing that the church wanted was another Judas with his hand in the purse, okay? That's the last thing that they wanted. They needed men who could be trusted because the reputation of church leaders produces a reputation for the church, So you need men with good reputations, not questionable ones. Criteria number two says that they had to be full of the Spirit. Not just that they had the Holy Spirit, but that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. As we've talked about in sermons previous to this, there's a difference between being indwelt with the Spirit and then being filled with the Spirit. You think about what the Scripture teaches about how when when people were filled with the Spirit, Acts 2 says that, Miraculous things happened like Pentecost and speaking in tongues and, and uh, Acts chapter four, when they were filled with the spirit, the apostles preached with boldness and the room was shaken, right? Power, they, they were given power to be his witnesses in incredibly difficult situations as you read the rest of the book of Acts. That's what the results are of being filled with the spirit. But here the apostles say, you need men who are filled with the spirit in order to handle your food ministry. And we might... We might think of those types of roles as, you know, um, 
you know, do they, do they really require the filling of the Spirit to do those roles? Here's the truth. Whether our service of ministry in the church, whether it is miraculous or mundane, we need the filling of the Spirit to do it faithfully. And I know this because all you need to do is go down to the children's ministry and ask all those folks who are handling your babies today. Changing your kids' diapers, the people who come in here after the service is done and clean up all the mess that everybody leaves in here. Yeah, little jab, okay. Asking you guys to, to clean up the cups, okay. Um, but all you have to do is really just think about the people who are ministering to your junior hires in their small groups, right? This takes work of the Holy Spirit, filling with the Holy Spirit. So in all seriousness, no matter what our role may be, if we want to have any spiritual impact at all, it needs to come from the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't have spiritual impact without the work of the Holy Spirit. So the church needs servants who are filled with the Holy Spirit. The church also was to look for uh, servants who are full of wisdom, right? Wisdom is the ability to apply truth to real life circumstances. This is, the, the church was to look for leaders who could do that. Apply the, the truth of God's word Godly principles into these practical situations that they're dealing with. So the apostles called the church to look for men with these criteria. And once these trustworthy men were identified and, and uh, recognized, what was one of the effects? Verse 4. Verse 4 says, the apostles say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So when they had reputable men to care for the physical needs of the church, then the apostles could care for the spiritual needs. And this is uh, kind of the, the beginnings, if you will, in the New Testament of us categorically thinking through leadership roles in the church. Some handled spiritual needs, others handled practical needs. And as we've said in the past, this text is one that really gives us the origination of the ministry of deacons in the local church. So I want to make it clear. We've talked a lot about prescriptive text versus descriptive text as we worked our way through Acts and how that's important distinguishment to make. But I want you to know something. This text is not mainly a prescription for how deacons are to be identified, recognized, and installed in the church. Rather, this text is mainly a prescription of, uh, excuse me, it's mainly a description of how the church organized itself so that the ministry of the word of God could continue to go forward unhindered. And that's, a, it's an, it's a, what, what was the point of Luke when he wrote this? Was, he, was Luke writing this to say, hey, I'm writing this down so that churches will know how to recognize and install deacons down the road? No. He's giving a historical record of the adjustments that the church made in order to see the gospel go forward so that people, so that they could recount how the, the early church were Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So deacon ministry, if I could say it very simply, deacon ministry exists so that the preaching ministry doesn't become neglected. What's the main point of the book of Acts, guys? Be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. How did, how did the gospel get to the ends of the earth? Part of it was by people stepping up 
into service roles to meet people's practical needs in the church so that other people could continue the proclamation of the gospel and getting it out to those who hadn't yet heard of Christ. The gospel would not have spread so rapidly if the apostles like Peter and Paul and James and others were uh, administrating the food needs. The ministry of the deacons exists so that the ministry of the word isn't neglected. So here we see that the apostles recommend um, that the church identify servants to be appointed for this practical need to care for the widows, administrate the daily distribution. And here's the church's response. Look at verse five. I love what it, I love what it says in verse five. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, which is a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So some of these men we know some things about, others we don't know anything about. So Stephen is going to be a really important character in the next two chapters, and you know, as we finish chapter six and go into chapter seven. Um, Philip, we're going to read more about him once we get to chapter eight, and later in Acts chapter 21. But four of these guys, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, we don't know anything about them at all other than they were part of the seven who were recognized as meeting these three criteria. Nicholas, it says he was a, a proselyte, which a proselyte is a convert. It means he was converted likely first into Judaism and then into Christianity, but he was from Antioch. So guys, these are the seven men originally chosen by the church for this role. And here's something that's just really cool to me that stood out in my study this week. Notice that they all have Greek names. They all have Greek names, which, which means that they themselves were all likely Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews. Well, why is that a big deal? Well, who else were the Hellenists that we read about in this passage? They were the widows that were being overlooked. So the church picked seven godly men, Hellenists, who could speak Greek and therefore minister to these Greek-speaking widows and those that cared about them so that they were no longer overlooked. I don't know, I just look at this and I see God's hand all over it and I'm like, eh, talk about the church just adjusting to meet people where they're at. Pretty amazing to me. Well, here's what happened next with these seven men. Look at verse six. Verse six says um, that they... that. These they set before the apostles, then they prayed and laid their hands on them. And that just raises just a, a situation that I think is important for us to address right now. What's going on in the church when a church brings someone forward and lay hands on them and pray? I mean, you, you've probably seen this happen in church settings. We call someone up or a group of people up, we lay our hands, we, we pray over them. Here's what it is. This is an, it's an action that when you read about it in scripture, it means different things. Sometimes you remember Jesus laid his hands on people, prayed for them, and they were healed. Sometimes leaders would lay their hands on people and provide or bestow on them a spiritual gift or a blessing. Old Testament and New Testament, you see that. Sometimes, especially here in the book of Acts, we see leaders laying hands on people and commissioning them out for a role of service to the Lord. And that's what seems to be going on here in Acts chapter 6. Laying on hands, 
We, we recognize unified as a church, these people are set apart by God for this task. And so when you see us at the beginning of July, you know, we're going to have a service here where we lay hands on our new elders and new deacons and we pray over them. What are we doing? We're not like, you know, it's not like magic powers going from our hands into these guys or anything like that. We're just saying like, Lord, we recognize that our church has come together in unity. We recognize that you are calling and setting apart these men for this task as elders and deacons in our church. So I look forward to laying hands on our new deacons and elders in July. Well, what was the result of all this? What was the result of all this delegation of ministry, commissioning? Verse seven says this, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests, right? These priests who were so hostile to Jesus, hostile to the apostles, they became what? Obedient to the faith. So that's pretty amazing right there, right? This is, this is what the organization and ministry uh, endeavors of the church are all about. We're not just about making more church services happen. We want to proclaim the word of God. We're not just about gathering church attenders, but making more disciples of Jesus. We're not just wanting to add church participants, but we want to see people converted into the faith, right? So this is what we want to see. This is what God did. Now, let me, having walked through those seven verses, let me close our time. I've got to figure out how much time I have left. Um, let me close our time by bringing some personal application uh, for us. What are some takeaways for us? I'm going to start kind of basic and, and move a little more precise, okay? So, Number one, guys, we need to recognize that organization and structure in the church are often good things. That's the first takeaway for us. We need to recognize that organization and structure in the church are often good things. How many times, guys, how many times have we heard it said um, that, uh, how many times have we heard it said from people in our culture, you know what, I'm just opposed to organized religion. Right? Which always makes me kind of chuckle because I'm like, well, what does that mean? You're like, you're cool with totally unorganized religion or like, well, you know, what's up with that? It's not just a, a statement from outside the culture either, is it? What about from inside the church? Sometimes we'll hear Christians say things like, well, if it's organized, it's not spirit led. Okay. Well, here in Acts, we have a spirit-led organizational plan, <laughs> okay? The church identified leaders and sub-leaders and, you know, action plans, you know, things like that. And here's the thing. The more the church grows, the more challenges are going to come. Therefore, you're going to need more organization and planning to try to make it all work. So yes, it's absolutely possible for the church to kind of manage itself to death, okay? Um... You can do that in such a way where you, you lose all sorts of uh, dependence upon the Holy Spirit and sensitivity to God's leading. You don't want to do that. So that, but that's not always the case. You know, I believe that for the most part, prayerful, God-seeking organization is a great thing for the church. We, we see in the book of Acts, you know, in the book of Acts, what we're going to see is that the church moved from being organic to being organized. Yes, it's a living organism, 
But as the organic church grew, more organization was put toward it. As we study the book of Acts, you're going to see that Paul helped the early church go from being totally unstructured to having more structure. Um, Later in the Apostle Paul's epistles to the church of Corinth, he writes to them things like, God is not the author of confusion. Let things be done decently and in order. So we need to recognize that church organization and structure can be very good things in the church. That's the first takeaway for us. Second takeaway for us, second practical application is this. Guys, I want to ask you, please understand that our pastors and elders absolutely need to prioritize the ministry of the word here. And I know that we are blessed with a church that totally gets this. I mean, for the most part, I mean, everybody here is, is so supportive of us prioritizing and organizing things the way that we need them. But guys, our, our church is growing. I mean, we're not growing like the church of Acts growing, but things are growing here. Things are happening. And the more people that we have, the more needs are going to arise. You know, there's going to be more spiritual needs and more practical needs. And I'm standing here today asking you to support and understand when the pastors and elders of our church need to give ourselves to meeting the, the spiritual needs of the people answering doctrinal and theological questions, helping counsel people with God's word. I'm asking you to support us when we prioritize that in our ministry. This means that other people in our church are gonna need to start taking on some of the tangible and practical roles in the church. We're, we're hitting a time in our culture where the word of God absolutely needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be brought to bear on some very real issues in our culture. There are doctrinal and theological issues that we need to address in the pulpit, in our classes, in our growth groups, in our doctrinal statement. There are people in our church that need to be counseled with the word of God, not just man's best systems. They need to have the word of God applied in their personal and family situations. And guys, way too many churches that once started boldly proclaiming, strongly proclaiming the word of God, they get off track and they end up falling into things like programs and pragmatism and things like that that aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but they can be wrong when they take you away from the word. So we need to stay faithful to God's word. So please continue as you have been to support our pastors and elders as we prioritize the ministry of the word and delegate other responsibilities out to others. Speaking of which, I just want to say this from the bottom of my heart. Church family, we need to thank the Lord for our deacons. We have an incredible, incredible deacon body here. That's our third takeaway. Thank the Lord for our deacons. I, you know, these guys handle so many needs in our church that I can't even keep track of them anymore. They, I read about how this plays out in Acts chapter six here. And I'm like, our deacon body, they are like our living examples of the seven men in Acts chapter six. And I'm thankful for them, guys. We have 20 active deacons right now. Three of them are gonna be rotating off later this year. Lord willing, 11 more are going to be brought in. That's going to give us 28 deacons, active deacons, going into the fall of next year. This number of deacons is going to allow us to provide that personal and practical care that the church needs. And so, church family, I I hope that you sense this in your heart. I hope that there's a growing, increasing thankfulness for the ministry of our deacons. When, When you have an opportunity to interact with them, esteem them, 
honor them, appreciate them. They, they would never ask for, they would never ask me to even say this right now. But they are servants of the Lord and they care deeply about you and your lives and what's going on with you. And they care deeply for our church. And they want to help meet needs of people in our church. Just this, just this past week, I heard about two more of our deacons who heard that one of the widows in our church had uh, an issue with her home where those two deacons said, hey, let's get together, let's go take care of it. And they just went over and took care of this need for this widow. And that's just another little snippet of the ongoing God-glorifying ministry of these 20 deacons that the Lord has blessed us with. All of this ties right into yet another very specific practical application for us. Number four, takeaway for us, number four. If you are a widow in our church, never hesitate to make your needs known. If you are a widow in our church, if you ever become a widow in our church, never hesitate to make your needs known. I looked at our membership directory this past week and I think as of right now, I think we have 10 widows who are members of our church. We may have more who are not members, who are regular attenders in our church. I have a grandmother who's turning 90 years old later this summer. She's a widow. Her church takes care of her well. And I know from my grandmother and others that widows, like when there are needs, I know you don't want to burden anybody and bring it up and bother people by asking for help. I just, I want you to know this. By God's grace, we will be a church that helps you. And I want you to know this too. It is, it is a privilege to serve the Lord by serving you. It's a joy for us. So if you're a widow in our church, don't hesitate to share your needs as they arise. And then the last takeaway for us, guys, when we live out this organized, <laughs> uh, spirit-led approach to ministry in the church, guys, can we just believe that the Lord's actually gonna make converts and make disciples? You know? Well, we believe that. Do we anticipate that? Because I believe that if we stay on track, continuing to faithfully proclaim the word of God, if we desire to be filled by the spirit of God, if we continue to care for the needs of the people of God, and we organize ourselves well to do that and to serve people, then I believe God's gonna save people. And he's gonna grow them. I mean, just this past week, it was awesome for me. We had our first team of workers out here working on the site. And, uh, you know, we had neighbors that started to walk over and like ask, like, hey, what's going on over here? We've heard some things. And they start to get the scoop on what's going on. And before you know it, we hear about one of the people that's out working on the job site who's sharing the gospel with one of our neighbors who lives right across the street. I believe that more of that will just happen if we believe God that it will and then react when it does, right? Like, so perhaps, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just asking you to believe with me that God wants to save people, that he wants to grow disciples through the ministry of our church. For some of you, you might be here today and you might be like, I'm here at church today. I don't even really know why I'm here. I just came. I don't know if I have a real relationship with God. I, I hear you preaching the word, Jason. I... I want to be interested in the Bible, but I don't know that I know God personally. I just want to say to you, if that's you, then you need to be saved. And that's our churchy word of saying that you need to be saved, meaning forgiven of your sin and 
made right with God. And I want you to say, I want to say to you today that through Jesus Christ, you can be saved today. If you will admit that you're a sinner and you believe that God sent Jesus to this world to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And if you believe that God raised him up after three days and you will confess with your mouth, Jesus, I believe. And I want you as the Lord of my life, please come into my life. Change me, make me new. At that moment, you'll be saved and you'll have a real relationship with God and things will be personal for you. So if you've not been saved, be saved today. Church family, will you join me in believing that God actually wants to save people and make disciples? By God's grace, may we organize ourselves in such a way that people are served well and the word of God is continued to preach faithfully. All right, let's pray. Lord, I ask that you uh, would take this message, these truths from your word, and I ask that you would let it be like a seed that takes root in our hearts and over time grows and produces the fruit of obedience and repentance and spiritual maturity in us. Lord, we uh, admit that as our church has grown over the years, we have had growing pains. These are, uh, there are problems for us to deal with, good problems, Lord. We thank you for the challenges that you put our way, but Lord, we need your wisdom. I pray especially that you would give our elders and deacons and staff wisdom. We want to be filled with your spirit and filled with wisdom so that we can by your grace, shepherd your people well. And Lord, I pray for our church body as we continue to grow that you would let us be a church that does well to step up to the plate to serve one another in such a way that the ministry of the word is never neglected or halted. Lord, I pray that you would keep us faithful to your word as the culture is increasingly hostile against it. And yet, Lord, by your grace, as we read about in the book of Acts today, that many more people would be converted, become obedient to the faith, and that many more disciples would be made. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.